Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustar. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Africa is booming, not only economically, but also from a data protection perspective. In recent years, we have seen a large number of countries adapt data protection legislation, and several African data protection authorities play a leading role in the international data protection community. Our guest today has been a key figure in African data protection for a long time already. Tekia Kwete was the first executive director of the Ghana DPA and having successfully set up the institution currently serves as the chair of the Africa Digital Rights Hub. She is also a senior partner at Messia Kwete and Company, advising companies on digital rights in Africa. And we are very much looking forward to an interesting conversation. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, okay, y'all know already know what's coming. I love it. I love the fact that we have Techie here on our show. We have had a huge gaping hole in the coverage that we've done on Serious Privacy, not from lack of trying, just from lack of being able to line up with someone. So being able to have Techie here is fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kate. All right. So are you ready for the unexpected question? I am. (laughs) All right. Let me find an unexpected question. Ooh, no, I can't go that one. That takes a lot of thinking. What is the first sentence of your autobiography? (laughs) Now that's scary. Yeah. See, that's why I'm not going there. Okay. This one's a little easier. What's the last meal that someone cooked for you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Last meal someone cooked for me. Oh, that's hard. I, I, I cook myself. That's so hard. I don't, oh, I'm trying. That's terrible. I think I need to ask my friends. Okay, maybe that was last Sunday. My auntie, because I went for a party and she had cooked. So I think I had spring rolls from there. So Nice. Yeah. That's a good last <laughs> meal. Nice. No, oh, that sounds bad. Last meal. That was a great it wasn't meal. A meal. It was like a snack because I, oh, no, no, no. I think that's Uh-oh. wrong. On Monday, and if my friends listen to this, I think he's going to hold me accountable. He had the house <laughs> up the hill, so he invited a bunch of us, and he made this, we call it a bomb. It's like a spinach. Ooh. A spinach meal. You make it with palm oil and salted fish. Ooh. With, with some unripe plantain, cocoa yams, and it was called a... Nice. And there was also fried and uh, guinea fowl. That so, was fabulous. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That was, that was a meal. That was a meal. and A very traditional African yeah, meal. Yeah, 
And it, it's actually one of my favorites. So we normally try to run up there whenever it's a, it's a holiday, you know. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very nice. Well, and of course, Paul, you know, we had to go food because that's our second show is, you know, food. <laughs> Not that we've ever done it, but what was the last meal someone else cooked for you? Not that you cooked. I think that would have been gnocchi. Um, so Ooh. the Italian potato-based pasta. Yeah. I think that's the one. And also with some smoked salmon. Love it. Can't have it anymore, but love it. Yeah, it was it was very nice. Okay. I had I don't know whether there's a Polish version of it because I was in Poland and I had uh, something similar. You probably had pierogi. <laughs> Really? Which is which is sort of filled packages out of uh, out of Poland. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Could be the one. Oh, okay. So, okay, how about you? What what did somebody cook for you? Well, see, I'm spoiled. My husband makes breakfast for me every day. Oh. Breakfast in bed every day ever since we've been married. So, the definition of cooking a meal for me might be a little bit over um, exaggerated here. But this morning I had oatmeal. Oh, that's so nice. He cooked me oatmeal and coffee. So we're going on 20 and a half years now, and my husband makes me breakfast in bed. So cooking may be a bit of an exaggeration, but he makes me breakfast. That's a beautiful Friends that are very thing. jealous. We need to pass that <laughs> to a few husbands out there. There, there you go. Yeah, exactly. I'll... You need to make breakfast in bed. <laughs> there we go. All right. I'll, I'll try to remember should I ever get married. Please. Although with my current schedule, if I go into the office, I leave the house at seven. So I'm not sure whether anybody would appreciate to have breakfast before seven, but we'll see. <laughs> the night before, I always look at my calendar at what time my first meeting has to be. Okay. And then I back it up an hour and a half for when I need breakfast because it takes me a while. <laughs> You also get a breakfast order form that you can just tick boxes what you would like the next morning. Right, exactly. And hang it on the doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Paul. So just kick us off with the first question. I, I don't know why I always give you the first question nope. and the last question, but I do. So there we go, Paul. Kick us off. That's probably because I prepare for these things and have some questions lined up and you don't. Don't don't disclose my secrets. Everything I do is spontaneous and authentic. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. It is a real pleasure to catch up with you via the podcast because it's way too long ago since we were able to touch base. Yes. How are you? Yes, thank you so much for having me. And, and it's a pleasure seeing you, even though I wish I would have seen you in person because I think we haven't met in a while, possibly we five, six years. Yeah, five, six years. And I'm sure COVID have also added its own to that. But it's a pleasure to be here. So how are things in in Ghana at the moment when you when you look at data protection? You've been out of the DPA for five years now, I think, since 2017. 2017? Is that five or is, is more? Is it time five? flies. Seven. Well, time has been standing still. So Yeah. I I think that, you know, there's there's been some growth. There's been it, it has always been a steady progress and, and growth. And the thing with data protection is that you know, incidents come up and, and it always triggers something. And so 
We've seen a few things that have happened in the country that have triggered in the last couple of years, uh, particularly which have triggered the need, you know, to have a stronger regulator, the need to have, you know, better enforcement of the laws and the like. So I, I think there's growth and, and that that is really what we all hope for, you know, that industry becomes more aware and implement that the public becomes more sensitive to these issues and demand uh, for accountability when it comes to the laws. And so we're seeing some steady progress. In fact, I think that there's been a few judgments, even though I won't call those the ratios of, of the decisions that were taken, but there's been a few judgments where, you know, people have won some kind of damages being awarded to them based on violations of their privacy and and I think all those things point to the fact that there's some growth. It's not as, you know, fast as we would want it to be, but no. but it's still growth nonetheless. And I think we should acknowledge that. Yeah, that is wonderful. And I know that Ghana was one of the earlier countries in, in adopting and operationalizing the privacy legislation. We've seen a, a lot of countries follow suit in, in, in recent years. Notably, of course, South Africa, where everybody's focus seems to be on. But I myself was always been impressed by Burkina Faso, such a yeah. a small country, not the country you think first of. I think if you if you look at Africa, which is now really playing a, a key role, also in the executive committee of the international conference. Do you have any any explanations for that? I think that you know that is bound to happen. Africa. And, and most African countries, which have fallen within the developing countries, have always seen technology and technological advancement as a way of accelerating economic growth and development. And so in the last two decades, what we've seen, countries adopting a number of legislations meant to create an enabling legal environment for the growth and development of ICTs. And you know, a natural fallback as part of these developments will definitely be data protection laws, which is one of the key legislations that you normally go for when you're looking at putting in place a system that actually enables trust in terms of sharing and, and use of, of data. And so it's almost like a natural drive. We, we, we are now hearing a lot of countries are even going a step further. We're talking about smart cities. We're talking also about AI and, and development and use of AI. We've also seen our countries talking about big data. And more recently, we're talking about the Africa free trade area, right, which is, you know, nice. a very significant thing. And there are communications already happening around the digital economy and protocols to enable the digital economy. And so you cannot have all these conversations without putting in place a framework that can actually facilitate the, you know, sharing or the responsible sharing of data, which will naturally happen if you want to put in place uh, most of these technologies to facilitate development across the continent. So I, I think that is really the, the key driver. Of course, we, we're also seeing the interest of communities like the EU, 
which has played significant leadership role and also interacts and, and does a lot of work with Africa. And so, of course, with having laws like the GDPR in place, you want to make sure that your trading partners, you know, uh, that you're working with, even in the digital space, are also committing the same level of resources and also understand you know, the implication and the interest in protecting its its citizenry around these issues. So, of course, there have been a, a number of influences, but that have also come from, you know, the likes of the EU and, and other donor partners also in African countries. Yeah, I think that in part also already answered another question that, that I have about mainly that others have, because I've been, uh, of course, following all the legislative developments and in conjunction with, with the economic and, and technological developments. But whenever I talk about Africa and data protection, there is somebody saying, is that the biggest thing that they have to worry about right now? Aren't there other things that the African country should should focus on? And of course, Africa is a huge continent. It's it's many times bigger than Europe. So you cannot compare Morocco to South Africa, to Egypt, to Kenya, to Ghana. But at the same time, um, that is still the image that people have. It's development territory and is data protection then the core thing to focus on? So I think it goes back to what I have said before, right? We, we are seeing technology as an enabler to accelerate the growth and development. We are targeting technology to eliminate poverty. We're targeting technology to eliminate the, the, not just the digital device, but divide, but even the educational gap between the rural and, and, and the urban centers and the like. And, and so when you look at all the core sectors of, of the, whether it's health, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's whatever it is that we really require, agriculture and, and food industry and growth, we are actually seeing that the impact of technology in actually facilitating and enabling better growth and development in these sectors cannot uh, be, you know, underestimated. And so that is really the driver. I will give you an example. And also when it comes to technology in Africa, we should realize that the mobile sector really revolutionized, you know, how yeah. we we had a community where, you know, fixed telephony was very limited and almost inaccessible. Mm -hmm. And so we were at the time talking about issues like universal, serv serv universal service and the like. And, and then with the opening up of mobile telephony, it even, it actually expanded and increased access significantly in ways that people would not have been able to have. So when you are even looking at technological use, and, and I stress on use in Africa, I think that it's even sometimes far outweighs what you would find in Europe and other developed countries, precisely because of how the technology developed. And that is why you would find, you know, things like the mobile money industry you know, the, the biggest mobile money industry that you're going to find across the world is in Africa. Why? Because these technologies and tools provide a platform that actually enables us 
have access to things that we want. Hitherto, banking was the reserve of the rich, right? Mm-hmm. But with mobile money, banking is now possible with almost anybody. And we are even exploring and innovating further to look at how that can increase, you know, credit accessibility. You know, mobile, the mobile money industry has actually opened markets. You know, so I am sitting in, in Accra. I actually buy yam from up in the northern region and I don't need to go there. The seller just sells the products directly to me from her market, from her farm, puts it, mm-hmm. parks it, puts it in a transport. I send the money to her almost immediately using mobile money payment. Guess what? She's cut off the middlemen. She's probably earning more because of that. Hitherto, the traditional approach would be for the large-scale buyers to go into the farms, buy from her, probably negotiate at a very little amount. Maybe they may even buy on credit. And then, you know, they transport it, give her money back to her maybe weeks later, you know, and she doesn't have. So it's really opened up. And so she gets a better price, you get a better price, and you get better produce exactly, faster. Exactly. So what is it really doing? It is really serving. The technology is serving the community. However, these same technologies are opening themselves up for, you know, there's data that is being moved around. She's, you know, her, her financial data and information is now linked to her SIM card. Whose responsibility should it be to protect it? Do we need stronger laws to make sure that everybody that is in this transactional chain is equally and adequately protected? And so you really cannot do without it. When when you see the nature of engagements that are happening in the technology space, in innovation, and how we're utilizing technologies, these things equally impact people. I remember when we were at the Data Protection Commission, one of the first exercises that we decided to undertake was a baseline study, you know, of what data protection really exists. And this was done as a way of actually being able to measure whether the commission was making progress over time. So you are able to measure pre-awareness and then able to measure, you know, after you started putting Mm -hmm. in place protocols to see whether you've increased awareness. And so we we jumped on the back of a national survey that was being organized by the Ghana Statistical Service at the time. And I remember I was invited to go into the field then. What we had done was that nobody really knew about data protection. So the questions were like very basic questions, right? Um, assuming you have your telephone, your mobile phone pinned which you use in accessing mm-hmm. your money, who would you give it to? If you're going to a hospital, who do you want to share your information with? And remember, these were done in English, but it was translated to the local language. And I happened to be in a field with people who you would not call educated, you know, who do not read English, but these were interpreted to them in the, in the local dialect. And I was very surprised to see the amount of people that really still recognize the notion of privacy to the extent that they felt that if there are no laws in place, government should put in laws to protect them 
because there's a higher risk to them now. And and I think that goes to the very foundational issue of the fact that privacy is 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 a conserve of any human being. We mm-hmm. really need that, fascinating, you know, to operate, to live, and 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 to to live our lives fully as human beings. So it's not a notion of some rich person or some developed country deserves privacy better than my poor grandmother in a village somewhere. And and I think that is how we should be looking at that when when we are talking about it. Of course, implementation across countries, I think, will be different, right? So I am always being told, we, we see a lot of African countries adopting GDPR-like legislations. Mm-hmm. I'm in favor of GDPR-like legislation, but a legislation like GDPR, you should really, you know, factor in what your ecosystem really looks like. And that is why, for me, I have stopped advocating for uniformity of laws to, you know, similarities so that we can, if we all have similar principles, it may be implemented differently, but as long as it's being implemented effectively within the tenants of the ecosystem, that works. Because I don't think any African country currently even have the kind of resources Europe has to implement GDPR. You know, oh, and even Europe is not ready to exactly. implement GDPR. I mean, there are so many organizations exactly. that have not done exactly. it. So. Even the expertise that is required is not there. So I think the bottom line should be more about how do we adapt, you know, to suit our very unique ecosystem. And you, you rightly said it. Africa is a very huge continent, you know. I think it's the biggest in the world. And and we have 55 countries, so to speak. If you're talking about legal systems, we have various legal systems. Let's not even talk about languages, you know, that are spoken. And so it's a very diverse ecosystem. And I think that that is how we should also be approaching some of these conversations so that we do not lose the essence and the importance of issues like data protection, which I think is important, whether or not, you know, diversity still exists in, in our communities. When you, when you talk about alignment of legislation, so not so much the uniformity, but everyone within their own national legal tradition and ecosystem, is there a role that is currently being played by an organization like the African Union, like the European Union has done for GDPR? We do not have... The African Union is definitely playing a key role. But what we've seen so far with the Malabo Convention is that it has not, you know, it's not gotten the the ratifications that it needs. I, I think more than how many years has it been now? I probably have forgotten, but it's been quite a while now since it was passed. And it's still not gotten, you know, the ratifications that it needs to become effective mm-hmm. as well. And and I think that also speaks to some of these diversities and the, the reason why we probably need to do a lot more you know, engagements when when it comes to... But the African Union definitely has a very critical role to play 
so do the regional communities like ECOWAS, like EAC, like SADC, and the North African communities also play will play a significant role in, in actually enabling that. You know, I still haven't figured out how the structure will work, but yeah, but I think that it can be because of the, 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 you know, it, Africa is very diverse. And, and yes, sometimes. You can say that. <laughs> I've said that so often. <laughs> I've only seen a tiny bit of it, a tiny bit it's, of Kenya. It's very diverse. Uh, a tiny and, bit of East Africa and, 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 and Morocco. You know, and, and that's it. And well, that's already you so diverse. See, it's diverse in every way. It's diverse in food, in eco, ecosystems, in, in climate, in, in everything. And in the same way, it's diverse in terms of even its culture and history, all right? And, and that really affects everything from how laws are developed to how things are adopted and implemented and all of that. But I, I think that we will get there. I don't think Europe got to where it is overnight. Oh, no, certainly not. Even though it has taken us a lot longer to get there. And, and I think that the other side of it is that there are also other dynamics, right, beyond Africa, where I, I think that we continue to still have the scramble for Africa going on in another way. So usually there are influences, international influences and pools that sometimes also affect, you know, the ability to come together quickly to achieve these things. But it, it's work in progress. And, and the AU certainly in the last couple of years have been doing a lot in terms of taking that leadership to push for some of these things to happen. I see also a lot of capacity building efforts out of the Council of Europe. Of course, also advocating countries joining Convention 108 and 108 Plus, making sure that that becomes the de facto global treaty on, on, on privacy and data protection. Do you see the same, that there is a lot of attention from the Council of Europe for the various African countries? Yes, I, I have seen a number of African countries adopting or signing up to the Convention 108 and then 108 Plus. Personally, I don't think it, it really deviates much. Now, what I've been, you know, really asking myself, and it's a question I've always asked, okay, so what, what does this come with, right? Yes, okay, we're building capacity, you have these structures, you know, but how does it all come up? The bottom line for me when it comes to data protection is not so much about having the best laws. And I think Africa is noted for that. Most of our countries that have data protection laws have one of the have good ones, but we are not really implemented, right? So what does mm -hmm. signing up to Convention 108 mean if at the end of the day I will have it in my books and I'm not going to be implementing it, you know? That's true. Yeah. What What is the Council of Europe? What does that mean? So we need to really ask ourselves because for organization like ours, uh, which is the Africa Digital Rights Hub, the ultimate is in making sure that we create an environment that is safe, an environment that is trustworthy, an environment where these laws that are being advocated for are implemented for the protection of the citizens. 
So it's not just about the law and the beauty of the law or the similarity of the law to anything, you know, but what are we really doing to make the law bring it alive and let it impact the lives of people the way it was envisioned? You know, how are we curing the the mischief that the law was developed to cure in the first place? So you are currently also the, 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 the chairwoman, the president of the African Digital Rights Hub. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do, what your focus is and, and, and how you work? So we, we are not for profit and I'm not the chair. We, we have our chair that is uh, Justice Dateba. I am the founder and the executive director, albeit so we, we have a board and then an advisory body. We were predominantly set up to really facilitate digital rights issues across Africa. Of course, digital rights issues were broad, but At the time we were being set up, one of the drivers of setting up ADRH was the gap between research, informed research, and policymaking around digital rights issues. And we thought that the areas which have now become our thematic areas that we focus on were not receiving enough attention. And so our our objective was to, through awareness creation and capacity building, bring some of these things to light through research and publications, share some of the issues. And currently we look at data protection and privacy issues. We look at cybersecurity related issues, child online protection, intellectual property, but as relates to technological innovation across Africa. And then also we recently just added on data governance issues, which we think nice. is, 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 is picking up. It's very broad. We've generally worked through research. So in the past, we noticed that, the, for instance, the digital ID space was growing and developing rapidly, and nobody was talking about data protection when it came to that. So we, we started our first conference, the Data Protection Africa Summit that we had actually in Mauritius. We zeroed in as part of our closed-door roundtable with regulators, with implementers, and, and industry players. We zeroed in on, you know, how do we address digital ID issues and data protection across Africa? And what that meeting said to us was, for instance, that, look, we need more guidance. And so ADRH then took that up, came back home and developed a code of practice for digital IDs and data protection in Africa, which is a resource that anybody can, you know, have access to read. And it is going to give them a step-by-step guide on how to look at the digital ID ecosystem how to put in place frameworks, what they should even be looking at when they are thinking about digital IDs and the like. So we do things like that. We uh, raise awareness, we build capacity. And and then sometimes we, we just recently came from Sierra Leone where they were developing their 
data protection laws. And I had the opportunity to share my own experience with them, you know, developing the the Ghanaian laws, things that I think were loopholes, things that worked for us, things that didn't work, things that I thought we put in the law that shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> and, you know, kind of like share some of those experiences also with them to to help them navigate you know th- their own terrain and the good thing is that a lot of the african countries are also very similar so in some of our engagements we bring the regulators equally together to share their experiences you know with others we try to bring industry and regulators together to have a common ground and understanding around certain things Clearly, from my own experience, I I realized that setting up um, a data protection commission without, you know, collaboration with industry was very difficult. And bringing them on board really helped us shape our vision at the time and also helped move some of our messages forward. So those are the, the kind of things that we do, at least on the data protection and privacy front. So, Techie, we didn't actually talk about this. You just got through talking about the challenges of setting up a data protection commission. How did you get into privacy? How how did you grow to this? I I probably was born with privacy in my blood. (laughs) 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 That I love. That I'm quoting. Born with privacy in my blood. You know, the genesis of it started probably... Back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, okay? So I had a bunch of friends that were computer engineers, software developers that had gone to the MITs and a number of the Ivy League schools back then, and they had just come back into Ghana. Most of them were working. And, and you know, that was just around the time of the dot-com boom and, and the excitement around the internet. Oh, I know. I was in 01. So I was I working have, at a startup company. I have always had a bunch of friends around me. And somehow, between we had like a couple of gap years as a result of university strike. So after my A-level, as a gap year thing, my father didn't want me to sit around at home. I still don't know the relevance of what I went to learn, but I was pushed into a computer school. <laughs> I I don't know what, you know, so we had to learn the language, door systems and all those crazy things, how computer functions. And, and so growing up through our yeah. secondary school, I always had a computer at home, which has always been fascinating for me, but we were only using it for games. I think the wheel of the wheel of chance... My favorite. So, you know, you get pushed, go and, you know, use the computer, but you're going to use it in playing games. So I've always been fascinated with technology. And of course, I was very bad with math. So engineering was was also not an area that I could go into. And, And so my natural positioning has always been economics and law. And, and then I went into law and I made friends with people who were into technology. And, you know, somehow in all these, and I'm very argumentative, I'm sure my friends will say that. So somehow 
in all these conversations, they were always coming at it from the approach of, you know what, technology is going to revolutionize the world and everything is coming to an end and we're going to change how people do things. And I didn't like that. I was a student of law that believed in the rule of law and, you know, everything must be orderly. And, you know, if you come in, if you're telling me that these systems are going to take over the world, that you're going to, going to respect the, how, you know, I always saw that, you know, as chaos. And so I was always coming in, in on these arguments as no, 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 that's not possible. That's not what, what the law says. And then they go like, no, 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 the law will change that. So that, that was really, you know, <laughs> we're going to change it. What can the law do? The computers will do it anyway. What can the laws do about it? And so that always, you know, triggered my need to really understand, you know, what this ecosystem is going to mean. And then, of course, I started reading around right. issues at the time. I've forgotten this particular, I think it's Russell, that was the name. At the time I was reading this, they had uh, this blog. I think they still do. You know, so you were reading around things like, you know, people registering the domains, you know, you remember the domain wars where people sold off mm-hmm. their domains and yep. buy selling or buying off people's trademarks. And it always used to bother me that this is not right. You know, you know, it's not like you need it. But then on another side, you, you're thinking about all these things. So that was really my my plunge into it. And and so when I finished law school, there was a big problem. Okay, now you're going to be called to the bar. The next step is that you're going to work. I'm like, no, 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 no. My idea of schooling was that I was going to, you know, go out in the world and research and I've been stuck in Ghana all this time you know of course you travel on vacations and things like that but that's not really what I wanted I didn't want to take any responsibility whatsoever so at the last minute when it started dawning on me if you don't think about something now because all my friends had decided they were going to do their masters I didn't think it was important but suddenly I was like okay if there's a master's program in you know, technology law, I'd love to do it. So I started looking out for it. I applied a bit late. Luckily for me, I got into the University of Strathclyde at the time. And they were one of the, I think, two universities in the UK, Queen Mary and then Strathclyde that were doing IT and telecom law. And that's it. And in there, there was a program that they called Information Security, which was thought by Professor Ian Lloyd. And that became my favorite subject, actually. (laughs) You know, I think one of the highest marks I scored (laughs) throughout was in as a concept around privacy or something like that. Of course, as part of that project, you're given this huge, at the time, UK Data Protection Act. You you don't want to look at it. The FAT one, I I think it's still FAT, but it was a very scary, huge document. (laughs) that you needed to read to try and understand and all of that. But that was really my, you know, opening into into that. Of course, after school, my plan had always been to come back and to see how these things uh, were really impacting our societies, especially because at the time, 
Ghana was just getting into liberalization of the telecom sector as well. And I, my program looked broadly at, at both telecom regulations, information security, intellectual property, and, and the like. So it was it was really good area to come back. And I actually did my, my thesis on a sector that affected Ghana, that was the telecom. So when I came back, we were just at the beginning of uh, thinking around laws like cybersecurity, electronic transactions. And so I used to volunteer my time after court, you know, to support some of these processes. And then one day somebody called me and said, oh, there's an opening in the World Bank project for an ICT legal expert. So bring us your CV. I did. It took probably about a year or so before they got back to me. But but they wow, did. Okay. And, and really, that was the beginning of my work then with the ministry as a consultant where I was. I had the opportunity to advise on, you know, creating that enabling environment. And it's, it's been one of the exciting things that I have done. So in the process, we pushed for the passage of several legislations, more than 11, cutting across telecoms, broadcasting. Data protection was one of them. And, and, and the like and electronic transactions and, and many others. And, and so. Fascinating. Yeah. So right after yeah. we passed the data protection, our project was then set up in such a way that you're not just a consultant. You had a permanent desk within the ministry. And so you had a permanent role within government to support them beyond the consultancy work that you were doing. And so I was then asked by the ministry to help with the establishment of the commission. And at, at the time, the board had been created and the like. I was also put on the board to represent the ministry and to help with the creation of, of the... And I was doing it. They tried to hire somebody who decided, I don't want this hard job. And so, <laughs> and so at some point... The board started looking at me. We're looking for somebody. Do you want to apply for the position? And uh, Professor Dateba, who I admire so much, he's actually the board, the chair of ADRH now. And, and the board at the time, a very formidable team that I really respected, they asked me to apply for the position. I couldn't turn them down. I, I knew it was like a how would I call it? A suicidal thing, you know, to do. And I probably share more another time. It almost became my, it would almost killed me, but it was the best thing I had done at, at the time. So I, I took it up and it was really a challenge, you know, trying to bring this, you know, piece of document that you have developed alive. And not just that, that challenge of making everybody see, understand, and believe in the document, because that was always a challenge. There were not a lot of experts around on those things. And even for me, you know, I had generally approached privacy from the legal perspective. And and yes, so my knowledge of implementation of a regulatory body, even though I had a fair understanding of how a regulatory body is supposed to act and compliance and things was very limited. And so it was also a very good learning curve for me. And um, sometimes grouping blindly in the dark. <laughs> and about what time frame was that? 
this was, I believe, 20, 20, I left in 20, 2013, I believe. Yeah, 2013. So that's a long time to build. Yeah. And it took us, I gave myself five years. Just at the end of the five years was when I, no, because it was, it was suicidal. It was the kind of job right. that I left a very juicy job to take, you know, something that was not necessarily paying you at all, but you were, and yeah, so I had to, at yeah. some point, take a, a beautiful bow out and say, thank you very much for the opportunity. Save your sanity. Yeah, exactly. But, but it was, it was a worthwhile, I met Paul, I, I met several of the other commissioners. The ICO was very, very instrumental in actually supporting us. And and that was why one of the first things I actually had to do was look for people who were doing similar things in Africa, right. people who were doing things that we would love to do across the world, and then build that relationship uh, with them to really learn from their mistakes and then to collaborate and, and coordinate with them. And I think that was very helpful as well. And we tried to also build healthier relationships with industry also, you know, so that you could, because you can't do this. Look, I inherited nothing. If you, the right, someone who came to our first office, I inherited, maybe it was just the desk I was sitting on. We had boxes in the <laughs> office. He came to the office once and said, are you sure you, you're ready to do this data protection? It will see the light of the day. I said, say, it will. I said, are you serious? Because where we were and, and the progress, and I think about three years later, he came to our office and he was all in awe, you know, that, you know, from a little Good. office with boxes where you're sharing a desk and it was just you, you actually had an office that w would sit about 30 people. And, it, you know, so that that was really like a good, a good. good thing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is truly impressive. And if nothing else, it one highlights your passion for the role, but it also highlights how important it is for connections. Yeah. I, I, how I, very believe, important in, connections I believe in connections. I, I think all my life, that's the most important thing that has served me well. I, I always talk to people uh, about the fact that personally, I think that everybody that I meet has a reason, you know, to be in my life at the time that I meet them. And so I don't burn bridges you know, I, right. I, I don't burn bridges at all because it's very important to who you know. And, you know, people right. were the ones that really helped us build what we were able to build, open the doors, some of the doors for us, people guided, you know. And, yeah. and in this space, really, it's even if you're the best expert, it's so broad and wide that yeah. you can get blinded along the way. So you really need oh, yeah. all eyes, you know, around you to be looking out as well. And and I think that's right. why relationships are very important in, in this space. They are. <laughs> I think we have time for one short final question, Kate. 
Okay. One short final question on this. So what is your biggest challenge? So I know you were talking about your challenges of setting up the program. So currently, what would you say your your biggest challenge on your desk right now without violating any type of confidentiality? So what is your, your current biggest challenge? Growing Africa Digital Rights Hub. <laughs> That's my, my biggest challenge. You know, you work in the public sector is a different thing. We started out as a small NGO. We're seeing the impact of our work. We just came to the conclusion that we need to grow. We just finished the strategic uh, planning exercise that we need to grow. And and it's the scariest thing that I'm dealing with uh, right (laughs) now. I thought setting up data protection was hard. But I, I am realizing that setting up an NGO is, is even harder. And, you know, you, you really need to have everything around you to make sure that it works. I think that's my biggest challenge uh, right now. It looks. And that includes funding, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, funding is, is the biggest <laughs> one. And then even, yeah, I, I think funding, yeah. Funding affects almost everything, you know. So anybody with a bit of surplus money, if you want to do good in the world, know to find Techie. Please. (laughs) Oh, good. Yes, yes. Okay, with that, Paul, bring us to a close. Yes, I think that's a a, a great note to end this podcast on. Thank you, Techie, for being our guest and enlightening us about some of the things that are ongoing on the African continent. I know we've only scratched a little bit of the surface of everything that's going on, but it's a a good start. Thank you to our listeners again for listening to this episode of Serious Privacy. If you like us, please do review us in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe um, to the show so that you get new episodes automatically delivered to you. If you have any questions, reach out to us via LinkedIn. Look for Serious Privacy via email at info at seriousprivacy.eu or seriousprivacy at trustart.com. Um, you'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy, myself as Europol B, and the podcast as at Podcast Privacy. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming 
for compliance excellent. Check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.